Please turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to 2 Peter chapter 1, as we continue our study of this great letter. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 957. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 will be our focus. I will read the whole section for us, that is, verses 3 through 11. Our focus again will be on verses 5, 6, and 7. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Pray with me, if you would. Father, we ask that you would grant us understanding, clarity, and focus today. And also, maybe even more than that, we pray that you would give us humble hearts. In our pride, we don't want to be humbled. We don't want to humble ourselves. So help us by Your Spirit. Grant us the humility we need to live with our brothers and sisters with genuine brotherly affection. Grant us the humility to obey Your Word. Grant us the humility we need not to take ourselves and our opinions too seriously and to consider others more significant than ourselves. As we read and consider Your teaching, the teaching that Your Spirit gave the Apostle Peter, may we have hearts willing to humble ourselves, to consider our ways and return to the Lord. May we see that only in this humble obedience will genuine Christian joy and encouragement be found. And I would ask you where you are in your own heart and mind Pray that we would consecrate this time to the Lord and eliminate distractions, 
distracting thoughts and attitudes from our hearts and minds. And if you also would pray for me that I would have wisdom, humility, clarity, and grace to communicate effectively in a way that pleases the Lord and helps His people. Father, we love You. We trust You. We trust that You will do with this time as You will for Your glory and the glory of Your Son, Jesus. It's in His wonderful name that we pray. Amen. As I said, we'll be examining verses 5, 6, and 7 today. As you can see, this message is a part one as we try to take off bite-sized portions of this text. As a preacher, as you know, I do not like to leave any stone unturned. I want to investigate and drill down. I don't want to gloss over things. The more I dig and the more thought and time I put into a particular passage, the more I want to bring to the surface and show you the more I want to give you from the work of attempting to understand what God has said to us. So, attempting to take one of these bite-sized portions right now, um, we'll only be asking three exegetical questions of these three verses. So here they are. Number one, why does our faith need to be, need to be supplemented? Why does that need to happen? Number two, in what manner ought we to supplement our faith? Number three, what is the nature of these qualities? These seven qualities that he mentions, what, what do they actually mean? What are they? As we answer each of these questions, we will attempt to make a few exegetically warranted applications along the way. So there's not a clear-cut, clean application section at the end, though, as we look at the seven qualities mentioned uh, in these verses under question three, there will be obvious and direct applications. So that's where, uh, the, where the rubber will hit the road in many ways as we complete this message. So the first question we have, why does our faith need to be supplemented? Even asking the question and considering what P, uh, Peter is saying is a little bit startling. Faith needs to be supplemented. That means that something or a group of things, as we will see in a little bit, need to be added to or added with your faith. There are things in life where to add anything is to mess it up. Like perfectly smoked brisket. To add barbecue sauce to perfectly smoked brisket is to mess it up. And if you find yourself needing to add sauce to it, that means you already messed it up somewhere. Like good old hymns. I don't want to be controversial. I'm just a grouch. I understand. But most of the good old great hymns of the faith don't need a course to be added. I like most of them, actually. I'm just a grouch. Church curmudgeon, right? Another illustration for my fellow nerds in the room. The Hobbit did not need Peter Jackson's artistic license to be added to it. He messed it up. Yes, thank you. 
We can be charismatic on that point. Adding things messed it up. Sometimes, a lot of the times, less is really, truly more. And it seems that faith itself ought to be one of those things. Just the sort of thing where maybe to add anything to it would mess it up. But we're plainly told in this text that we should add things to it. We will see in this text, this chapter really, two reasons that we should add or supplement our faith. And I want you to see them both. We're actually just dealing with the first reason this week. Next week, part two, we'll be dealing with the second reason, which is actually a a bucket full of reasons that he lists together. They're all very similar. But the first reason looks backward to verses 3 and 4, which we looked at last week. The second set of answers is verses 8 through 11. Why do we need to supplement our faith? He's referring back to verses 3 through 4. And this is what the shift, right? You see it linguistically, grammatically, for this very reason. What is the reason he's referring to? What is the antecedent of the this, right? These are preaching kind of questions, right? And it's difficult to single out any specific thing. And, and I think we, sh- we should consider the whole bundle of truth in verses 3 through 4 as the very reason that we should supplement our faith. So let me reword verses 3 through 4 in light of verse 5 to help us understand this. Because Christ's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we should add these qualities to our faith. Don't let our faith flounder. Because He has called us to know Him through His own glory and excellence, we should add these qualities to our faith. We should not be slothful in the exercise of our faith. Because He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, we should add these qualities to our faith. We should not presume and rest on the laurels of our standing in Christ. Because by His promises, He has destined that we should become partakers of the divine nature. We should add these qualities to our faith. We should begin even now to act like the sons and daughters of God that we are. Because we have escaped and are escaping from the corruption that is in the world. We should add these qualities to our faith. We do things differently in the kingdom. Because we are liberated from the bondage of our will and the sinful desires that result from it, we should add these qualities to our faith. We should not languish allowing the old man, the flesh, to have dominion again. In short, because you are saved, You should not be satisfied with faith in Christ by itself. Because you are secure in the saving grasp of the Lord, the Savior Jesus Christ, then don't let faith in Him be the end of the story. Because your destiny is so glorious, do not stop with mere trust. In the Lord. Go on to the multifaceted qualities of genuine faith. 
This is a fascinating idea in and of itself, this supplementing of faith. And I think it brings up, brings to us immediately to the foothills of some of the most significant questions of Christianity. Almost all language is an exercise in oversimplification, but at the risk of oversimplification, uh, the great divide between Roman Catholics and the Protestants that took off in the 16th century was dealing with this very issue. Is faith alone, in Christ alone, sufficient for salvation? In essence, the answer of the Roman Catholic Church, then and now, is no. That in addition to faith, one must do good works to be saved. Again, a gross oversimplification, but we have to make our way through. The Protestant answer, the answer of the stepchildren of the Protestant reformers, like us Baptists, is yes, faith alone in Christ alone is sufficient for salvation or justification. So, where in that question do these verses fall? That we are to add something to our faith. The answer might appear easy to come to, especially if you don't really let the text speak for itself and you just run to your systematic theology to answer the question before you do the exegesis, before you just do good listening to the text. What does this text say about the faith alone question? The easy, shallow way to answer it is just to easily say, well, this verse is, talking, this verse is not talking about justification. It's talking about sanctification. Meaning, this passage only tells us what to do after our salvation is secure and our home guaranteed. In short, it tells us the best way to use our time between now and our eternal home. But, with all due respect, that's not the flavor of this text because of verses 8-11, through 11, which we'll come to next week. And this is where the wisdom of James becomes so central and important. A faith that does not produce works is a dead faith. And a faith that cannot save. Can that faith save you? James rhetorically asks. Many will claim to have genuine faith in Christ, but it is not saving faith. It is not a living faith if it does not result in the things that Peter lists in some way. I think that's how we should understand this. So, all of that helps us see the context of what we're talking about. We are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It brings with it Friends, when it enters your heart. So, what is our part to play? The verb of this statement, this, the central verb of our text today, is supplement. It's actually in the original two complex words in Greek, and a clunky way to translate them together would be provide along with or to, to bring out, or to present at the same time. At a fine dining restaurant, maybe an overly pretentious one, you would get your meal in courses. And everything would come out in order. You'd have to finish the first course before you moved to the second, and so on. So for a six-course meal, you would perhaps have the hors d'oeuvres, 
then the soups, then fish, then the main course, then the salad, then coffee, then finally dessert, which is why we would be there in the first place. Everything in order and nothing at the same time. But as you know, in our fellowship meals, you can make one pass through that line and get all of that. All the mains and the sides, the appetizers and the dessert. Those who serve and set up the food on the table present or provide all the food alongside each other to bring out and present at the same time. That's the idea with this word, supplement. That's what we're to do. Faith is the main course, we might say. Whatever you like, the star of the show, the perfectly grilled ribeye or filet or perfectly smoked brisket, if you like. But it begs for some sides, does it not? It's not the perfect analogy because I'd be fine with perfectly smoked brisket by itself. But the more special a dinner is, the more features you want. A Thanksgiving feast would be really lame if all you had was the protein. I know some hate turkey, so I didn't say turkey. So, bringing it all back together, at the risk of sounding heretical, your Christian life needs more than mere faith. Faith by itself is not enough. We are commanded to live life, a life of more than faith alone. It must be supplemented because that's what faith is for. So no, works do not justify you, works cannot save you, and nor do these qualities. But yes, these qualities in action prove that the faith you have is valid. That it's alive, to use James's words. And that it is faith that can justify Probably the most simple and stunning way to talk about this relationship between these qualities and and genuine faith is this. These qualities being added to your faith will ensure that your faith does not fail. But we'll look at that more next Lord's Day from verses 8 through 11. So that's the first exegetical question. Why does faith need to be supplemented? Because it's never meant to be alone. Number two, in what manner ought we to supplement our faith? In these verses, these verses together with verses 3 through 4 show us how or the way in which we add these qualities to our faith. So, you know, I, I hope you let me, you allow me in your heart the freedom to bring up and ask these questions. It might sound to you like a nuanced or unnecessary question, in what manner ought we to supplement our faith? I hope I'm not trying your patience by asking such questions. It's so frustrating, though, as a hearer, as a listener, to be shown the glories of the Christian life and then just be given a, a, a pat on the back and to be told, go do it. That that is such a soul-crushing summons. And so much that passes for preaching nowadays does not ask enough hard questions like this to go beyond the simple, go do it. God commanded you to be holy, go do it. And so asking these questions, in what manner, what is the way that we're to 
supplement our faith from the text we're drawing. How can we as fragile, frail human beings filled with the Spirit, of course, how can we begin to walk in these things and actually begin to obey in a, in a non-shallow, platitudinous kind of way? That's what I'm trying to do with these questions. So, we add virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love to our faith, number one, in faith. It's difficult to go straight from Greek to English, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The sentence structure is all different. But it is fascinating to me that the linking preposition between each of these qualities is actually the preposition in. So here's what it would sound like in kind of a clunky paraphrase. In faith, provide with it virtue. And in virtue, provide with it knowledge. And in knowledge, and and so on and so on. You get the idea. So whatever we will go on to say about each of these individual qualities on their own, which we will get to in question three, and even in view of everything we've said so far, we can only add these qualities to our faith in faith. That's the point. By acting and thinking and desiring to do so in faith. This is so central in answering our question. As the Apostle Paul so clearly states in Romans 14, verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And as we read in our New Testament reading, Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. So you can be striving to add these qualities to what you think your religion is, trying to be virtuous, trying to have genuine knowledge, trying to be self-control, but if it's not in faith, it's not pleasing to the Lord. Faith is the engine that motivates us, that gives us that, that fills our sails, as it were. I'm I'm mixing analogies to help you understand the central role of faith. It is the seed that sprouts to the fruit of these qualities. This means that unless we're first grounded in faith in the Lord Jesus, we can't hope to add any of these qualities in the way we ought to. This also shows the union between all of Christian virtues and ethics, the taproot of faith in Christ is the central point. That's the main course. It's the foundation. That's the beginning point that God works in us and gives to us as we saw back in verse 1. To those who have obtained, to those who have been given would be a more literal rendering. To those who have been given a faith of equal standing. God works this in us. He plants the seed of faith in our hearts. And we must have that. We must begin there. We must never move off that spot of faith in the Lord Jesus. If you do, there's no real chance at all of getting any of these qualities worked into your life. This also shows us, I think, how we must think of maturity in faith and repentance. There is no such thing as genuine holiness then that is not explicitly connected to the person and work of Jesus. You must understand this. 
There's no genuine repentance that is not connected explicitly to the person and work of Jesus. There is no genuine, real devotion to God at all that is not explicitly connected to the person and work of Jesus. You can turn over all the new leaves you want. You can be clean for as long as you want. You can shed all the tears you want. You can feel as sorry as you can possibly feel. You can even fear God's judgment and try to live a holy life as much as you want. But if your motivation to live a holy life, to strive for godliness, is not rooted in your love and trust of Jesus Himself, if it is not solely fixed on your desire to gain Him, to know Him more, if He is not the center point of your treasure, the apple of your eye, then it very well may be be the case, my friends, that your holiness, your righteousness is fool's gold. Because without faith in Christ, It is impossible to please God. Is this not the heresy of the Pharisees? I don't mean to rhyme it and make it sound trite, but that's what we're dealing with here. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, Paul says. They rejected the the Messiah. And it could be argued that even in their attempts to be so obedient and so holy without the genuine love of the Messiah made their condemnation worse. No, we must pursue these virtues, these qualities of faith rooted in faith. You never move off the spot of faith. It's the origin. We stay there. We stay secure in that warm spot of genuine, simple trust in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, we add virtue... Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love to our faith with diligence. Diligence. Look at how he says it in verse 5. Make every effort. And he actually uses, at least the English does, the word diligent. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. I love the word diligent. The flavor kind of word. There are a great number of things that you can do in your life and a great number of ways that you can do every possible thing that you can do. Diligence is one way, a precious way, and a rare way of doing them. I remember when I was first learning how to sweep. If any of you can think back that far, I'm getting older, but I can remember when an old gentleman friend of my father was teaching me the proper way to sweep. I don't mean the way to move a broom around. Anyone can do that. No, there's this timing of how you apply pressure as you come through the stroke and how you gently release the pressure so the dirt doesn't go flying across the floor as the bristles release. Diligence is the attention to detail that makes the difference between sweeping and just stirring up dust or moving your mess around. You've seen the newbie who hates his job at a quick service restaurant working the front register. The dazed look on their face. And then you've seen the man who is striving to do the very best job he can 
even if it is just working the front counter, because he needs to get promoted, he needs to make more money so he can save up and buy that engagement ring. Diligence shows itself in follow-through, a good attitude, and zeal for the work. And it makes all the difference from what seems to be a dead-end job and actually a bright spot on your resume and enough saved in the bank to ask your love to marry you. Diligence in the Christian life is much the same. There is a holy kind of striving that we need to have, an attention to detail, a zeal, an eagerness, a willingness to go the extra mile for the sake of holiness. Make every effort. This is a commitment to excellence when it comes to doing all things as unto the Lord. This is the way in which we are to supplement our faith with these qualities. I think I can confidently say that everyone is diligent about something. Every human you meet is diligent about something. And the Bible doesn't say that you can't be diligent about other things than the pursuit of the qualities of faith. It's perfectly fine to be diligent in your work that honors the Lord. It's perfectly fine to be diligent even in your hobbies, your gardening, or even your sports fandom. Completely fine to be diligent. Do all things as unto the Lord, even your free time. However, our flesh doesn't fight us when we work really hard to be diligent in our career, in our hobbies, in our free time. But the flesh, the world, and all the forces of hell come together to make you not be diligent in supplementing your faith with these qualities. Not because these things are difficult in and of themselves. It's that it takes so much energy and effort to war against the things that come against us. There is an ancient conspiracy at work to prevent you from being this way. And so we must make every effort. We must be diligent in the pursuit of these qualities, brothers and sisters. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you understand the flavor of what's at stake? Number three, we add virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love to our faith with the resources that Jesus Christ Himself supplies. This is a reminder... Right? It's, it's in verses 3 and 4, not necessarily our text explicitly, but it says, for this reason, so we can look backwards. It's an exegetical tether to the previous verse. For this reason. I, I think we can understand this to be a causal statement connecting us to do, to live this way, to act, to be, because of what Christ has already done. Jesus Himself has already granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
So, in our pursuit of these qualities of faith, we must avoid the temptation of the enemy to feel overwhelmed in the face of these obligations and commands. There is a way to bludgeon yourself and to bludgeon your brothers and sisters with a list like this. We must not do that. No, in terms of tone, this is an encouraging passage. And it is meant to spur us on to love and good works. So initially, you should expect this. A list like this should feel like a cattle prod or spurs to the side. But, as the believer, once we are prodded to get up, to leave laziness of faith and to actually start diligently pursuing these qualities of faith, then we will find the resources we need. We have already been supplied with everything we need for life and godliness. You can confidently pursue these qualities. It may seem like Mount Everest or K2 in front of you. Or like El Cap. I'm going to try to climb that with no ropes. That's what this list of virtues can look like as a Christian. But he's already gone before you. He's already implanted within you the knowledge you need to pursue these things. And he's going to be with you by his spirit to ensure that you will surely come out victorious. So our third exegetical question. What is the nature of these qualities? We're going to look at them in order. But before we get into the specifics about any given one on the list, I want to say a few things about their relationship, about all of them together. Um, First, I don't think we should take this as a gradual progression. That's the temptation when we're looking at a text like this where the grammar is difficult to go from Greek to English. It's not a gradual progression because that would make no sense. If that were the case, we would never get to love which is itself the most foundational quality of the Christian life. The most foundational quality of faith is love. Of course, we know that from the teachings of Paul. So we shouldn't wait until we've got all these other things checked on the, off the list before we get to love. No, what the structure of the sentence indicates is, is kind of a never-ending circle like this. Or, or maybe even a spiral where we get closer and closer to the core, the heart of true Christian virtue. Here's what it would sound like in a more literal, clunky paraphrase. In your faith, diligently add a supply of virtue. And in your virtue, diligently supply or add a supply of knowledge. And in your knowledge, diligently add a supply of self-control. And on and on and on it would go. That's, That's how it would sound with how the sentence is structured. So to return to the, the analogy of our fellowship meals, which we're not having today, but this works as an advertisement for them. When I go through that line, I'm adding one helping here, one helping there, from one amazingly prepared dish to another, and I'm not stopping until I've fit as much as I can on that one plate before I go and sit back down. I fill my plate with the best combination I can 
Letting faith go on without supplementing it with these qualities would be like going through that line, picking one item, taking one small serving full, setting it on your plate, and then going and sitting down. And that would be sad. You would be missing out on the veritable feast that is laid out before us. So the way that this list of seven qualities works is to tell us how we are supposed to fill our plate with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control. Don't be content with mere faith. And don't be content even with faith paired with virtue. And don't be even content with faith paired with virtue and knowledge and self-control. We could go on and on. Don't stop adding to your faith until your plate is full. That's the idea here. Drawing our spiritual resources from Christ Himself, as we talked about last week and as we mentioned just earlier, with Him supplying us with all the resources we need. He Himself is the spiritual food our souls need. And we must take all we can from Him in a never-ending way so that our souls are fully satisfied in Him Therefore, we must not stop with faith or any of these one qualities alone to feast upon Him, to draw from Him all that He has to offer is what this text is commending us to do. Don't stop drawing from Christ until you have exhausted that well and you never will But the Christian life seems to be something of the nature of trying to. Trying to empty that well of all that is available to you in Christ. It's in many ways what I think maturity in the faith means. Also, know that this is not an exhaustive list. We could add many other things to this list of seven. Seven is, of course, a very biblical number, so that's why I think Peter stops there. Obviously, he's also limited by the length of papyri that he's writing on, so he can't go on and on and on and on. The list of seven prime qualities. These are the kinds of things, the kinds of things, the species, we might say, of things that we are supposed to add to our faith. Maybe it's even similar to the fruit of the Spirit. Those are general lists, and and all the authors of the New Testament use general lists. It's meant to give an outline of something. It's like those uh, connect-the-dot pictures that you would do as a kid. Maybe I'm dating myself, but but as a child you have these these pictures that that you're supposed to connect the dots between them. And so this list of seven qualities is, is in many ways the outline, the outline of something that these dots are showing us. It's not that those dots are the only thing that matter. It's the picture that they together portray to us. That's what these seven qualities are doing. So we need all of them and everything in between them. And so now we come to the words themselves. Again, before, before we just jump off into each one of these words specifically to talk about what they are, I want to encourage you, especially the young people in this room, Has anyone ever been discouraged because they weren't sure what the will of God for their lives was? Is that just me? I'm going to give it to you that that's kind of a mystery or a confusing thing. What does the God of the universe require of me in my life specifically? 
And to that I would merely answer, here it is. This is what God wants from you. What a liberating, freedom-giving, stale-filling way to view your life as a Christian. Who knows what God has planned for you? But what He has revealed to you now, today, is that you can make your life about virtue, about knowledge, about self-control, about all these virtues. Steadfastness, godliness, this is what He wants from us. So young people, there are many decisions out there in front of you. If you're a teenager, then the majority of the major decisions of life are just around the bend. Who you marry, what you decide your career path is going to be, where you're going to live, the freedom you will gain when you turn 18, all of those things. But I would commend to you this posture towards the Christian life. Add virtue to your faith. Add knowledge to your faith. Add steadfastness to your faith. Add self-control to your faith. Add godliness and brotherly affection and love to your faith. You, by doing so, will be worthy of a place of higher honor in the new heavens and the new earth than by trying to do any great or grand thing for God. I promise you that. And so now we come to the words themselves. Virtue. This word carries the sense of moral excellence or an excellence of character or nature. Interestingly, it's the same word that Peter uses in two other places in his letters. Peter uses this word three times. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used here. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he has called us, speaking of Jesus, he has called us to his own glory and excellence. That word excellence is the same word that we find here. Virtue, translated that way here. And there is a range of meanings. And the only other place it's used is in Paul's letters, Philippians, where he says, anything worthy of praise to think on these things? That's the same word. Worthiness of praise, excellence, virtue. That's the idea here. The only other place Peter uses it, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That word excellencies, that is the same word, virtue. So as far as I can see, this is the only place where we are commanded as Christians to be the same way. A word that's used to describe God. So the exhortation here is to not just be satisfied with the simple binary of sinful or not sinful. This gets so many Christians into trouble. We turn into lawyers in our minds and weasel our way out of this or that, saying, well, I'm not breaking any commandments. That's a pretty low bar. Holiness is about the heart and desire just as much or more than it is a matter of a legal definition of our actions as sin or not. No. This is the same problem that the Corinthian congregation faced. 
They were insisting till they were blue in the face. All things are lawful for me. And Paul's retort was, yeah, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. We might say here, it might be fine and even permissible what we want to do, but it may not be honorable or worthy of praise. We are to be children of the light, gaining praise for our Father to do good works before men so that others would see and praise our God even on the last day. We should be interested in doing the virtuous thing, the praiseworthy thing, the things that stand out as glorious and excellent. There are so many applications that we could say underneath each heading. I only plan to say one explicitly here. Husbands, are you being praiseworthy in the way you treat your wives? In the way you love them and serve them? in the likeness of Jesus. This is ground zero for you. You can almost set aside every other consideration when it comes to living your Christian life. If you're married, the way your faith needs to be supplemented to give you one beacon to pursue after is to be excellent and praiseworthy in your love and serving and caring for your wife in the example of the Lord Jesus. There's simplicity for us. Secondly, knowledge. This is a very common term for knowledge used in the New Testament. It's a more basic term for knowledge. We saw in verse 2 that it was a more specific, intimate knowledge. He says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's the more intimate, personal kind of knowledge. And here he's just talking about cold, hard facts, we might say. Even though we often talk about the dangers of knowledge and the inadequacy of knowledge. Yet, even though knowledge puffs up, we should never shy away from pursuing knowledge. You should read the Bible a lot. You should read the good books a lot. You should think a lot. You should worship the Lord your God, love Him with all your mind. Not every Christian will be a philosopher, and certainly not every Christian should be an academic, but without any contradiction, a Christian must become a student and learner of God's Word and God's story because we must supplement our faith with knowledge. There is a stigma attached to deep learning nowadays, and there's a resistance to reading the great theological works over the centuries. I'm trying to play my part in helping us supplement our faith with knowledge. And also we must get to know each other. The object of knowledge in this verse is undefined. So we can make it very broad. Make yourself a connoisseur of the knowledge of God. Make yourself a connoisseur of the knowledge of His Son. Make yourself a connoisseur of the knowledge of His plan of salvation. Make yourself a connoisseur of the knowledge of His people especially those that He has called you to live in harmony and unity with. Self-control is a very simple word. The King James translates it temperance. The ability to have your passions under control. 
We are not to be viscous, tossed about. We should not be given to outbursts of anger. It should not take us hours or days or weeks to get out of a bad mood or a funk. We excuse so much ungodliness under those headings. Not right. This taking control of oneself is no joke. Thomas Akempis said it this way, no conflict is so severe as his who labors to subdue himself. That is absolutely true. And I want to encourage those who are downcast today. Maybe you're trying, you are zealously pursuing self-control and you're failing. But I promise you this, a pursuit of self-control in a way that pleases Christ will bear fruit. And you're probably just more knowledgeable about your own failings than most of us are. No, it's actually more of a problem if you think that we're walking in a high level of self-control and we're unwilling to recognize our own blind spots. Steadfastness. The steadfastness indicated here means something like perseverance or endurance. That's how it's translated in the New Testament a lot. We are not stoics, though. We should not just endure for the sake of enduring. Have the hard and difficult things happen to us and just endure. That's not the point. At at the end of the parable of the sower, though, Jesus uses this same word to describe what He's talking about. As for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold fast, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That right there, that's what we want. That's what we should add to our faith. The seed is the word, and our being good soil is not our own doing. We can't, can't take credit for that. But we need to provide alongside our faith this attitude, this holding it fast and a good and honest heart, and enduring with patience. You might call this stubborn faithfulness. We are stubborn about so many other things. How about we just move that stubborn bone over to our desire to be faithful? Exercise that muscle of stubbornness towards faithfulness to God. We can do that by His Spirit. We can. Godliness. This is the same word also translated elsewhere in the Bible as piety. How do we pursue godliness and add it to our faith without falling into the trap of pietism or legalism? And those are real problems. The simple answer, I think, is that we're to understand that our goal is to please the Father by acting like Him while knowing that we are already fully pleasing to Him in Christ. If you can hold those ideas together as a Christian then you will have the zeal and energy to pursue holiness pretty much without hindrance, knowing that you are secure in the favor and love of God, but zealously pursuing being even pleasing to Him in our day-to-day actions. Brotherly affection. I think it's ironic that today of all days, with the big game happening, that we would come across a verse where in Greek, the word Philadelphia occurs. If you know anything about Greek, you know that this is what brotherly affection is is translating. 
Philadelphia is essentially associated with nothing but negative things in my household as Dallas Cowboys fans. It's a problem. But this is just a helpful illustration. To, ha- to do real brotherly love, to have real brotherly love, do everything the opposite of the Philly way. It's a perfect illustration. Those of you who are sports fans understand. There is that East Coast archetypal attitude where we're always grouchy fault finders. Always apt to complain and criticize. And if it goes well for someone else, we're, we suspect them of corruption or foul play. Everyone else's faults and quirks are a big, big problem to us and ours aren't at all. We always feel wronged or have suspicion of others. That's, that's the Philly archetypal attitude. So do everything opposite of that And that's brotherly love. In the first century, loving your brother meant something a little bit different than it does today. The success of your family, particularly the males of your family as heads of household, was the epicenter of your legacy and the well-being of your descendants. So in the church now, with brothers and sisters in Christ all around us, we must identify our good in the good of our brothers and sisters. It is no longer about me and mine. It is no longer about my retirement and my plans and the future even of my children. It is about the kingdom. First the kingdom and always the kingdom. Family, your biological family does come first in some very important ways. But the goal now to grow in brotherly affection means that we find our good in the good of our brothers and sisters and that we find the good of our biological family in the good of the kingdom. That's what brotherly love means. We want good things to happen for our brothers and sisters. We are eager for them to prosper in the faith. And lastly, he saves love for last. Love. Again, not because we have to wait to the end of all these things, to have love. Seems a little bit redundant to say love here, right? Especially knowing that the previous one, brotherly love, it's not affection, it's, it's brotherly love. So it, it would read like this, and in your brotherly love, add love. Sounds redundant, but it is a different word. The word, of course, agape. This is a more... Godward, direct kind of love. Whereas Philadelphia or brotherly love is, is something that is affectionate, something that wants and is eager for the good of our brothers and sisters. Agape takes it one step further down the road of self-sacrifice. Where we don't just want good things to happen for our brothers and sisters, we are willing to give of ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters. Like God does, even if it means great sacrifice. This is how God loved the world, that He gave His only Son. The word agape takes the idea of love and makes it go further. This is an utter selflessness, even a desire to give of oneself for the good of another. Not just waiting around for it to be happened or to be asked of us. That we go out, we eagerly go and find ways to give of ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters. 
And you can add all these virtues together. What, what, what is that outline? I talked about the connect the dots picture. What, what is the outline that these virtues are showing us? It is, of course, the person of Jesus himself. All of these virtues on infinite display in one human being, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We just sing of the deep, deep love of Jesus. This is why He is appealing to us. Don't you see? This is the invitation to trust Him because He is all of these things. Amped up to 11 and higher. He is the perfect virtuous man. He has all knowledge. He has perfect self-control. He is completely steadfast in His commitment to obey and honor the Father. He has perfect brotherly affection for His younger brothers and sisters. And He is love Himself. This is why we can trust Him. This is the invitation to come to Him and believe in Him and to give your life, Christian, to Him. Because He is all these things. He is worthy of your highest admiration and trust as the one who perfectly supplements all His faith in God with these qualities. And next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll see even more very encouraging and stark reasons from verses 8 and 9 that we should add these qualities to our faith. Brothers and sisters, let us persevere in the fight of faith and help each other Add these qualities to our lives until He comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for loving us. Loving us not in a mere affection kind of way, but in a way that gave. You sent Your Son. You showed Him to us, the One who is the perfection of these qualities. Thank You for Him. May we strive to be like Him. May we boil down all the complexities of our faith and of obedience to simply seeking to imitate our Lord Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.